The federal election for 2022 is over and Anthony Albanese has been sworn in as the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. And while there are still seats remaining to be called, the 2022 election marks a dramatic shift in politics in Australia. There's been plenty of commentary on the changing makeup of the House of Representatives with the rise of the Teals and what's been dubbed Greensland. But what we're going to dig into on the podcast today is what this means for public policy and what the federal government should prioritise going forwards. I'm Kate Clay, and with me today are Danielle Wood, our CEO, and Tony Wood, Energy and Climate Change Program Director. Welcome, Danny. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Kat. And I should say, no, no relation. It does get asked occasionally on social media. <laughs> so, Danny, starting with you, I mean, what do you make of these results? Uh, well, look, it, it was a very interesting night, I think it's fair to say. I mean, so certainly the you'd have to think based on, on the polls, we we expected that we might see either a Labor majority or, or minority government. But I think probably the, the more interesting result was the, the rise of the, the independents and the minor parties. Um, so in a way, this is not new. This is something that we've actually been seeing gradually happen over time. Um, you know, if you go back to sort of the 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, it used to be only about 10% of people would give a first preference vote to someone who wasn't Labor, Liberal or the National Party. You know, that that sort of went up to 15 to 20% through the, the 90s. Last couple of elections, it's been about 25% and now it's over 30%. So, you know, this is, um, you know, a sort of fundamental reconfiguring of, of politics where we can't expect that, um, you know, major parties are going to necessarily be out of form majority governments. In this case, they may, Labor may well form a majority government. Um, but, but I think what we are seeing is a fundamental shift in people's willingness to, to go outside the majors. Uh, we looked at it, we did a report on it actually after the 2016 election, because we thought it was such an interesting phenomenon. Um, and that report was called Crisis of Trust. And we called it that because what it looked like was people were feeling increasingly disillusioned with politics as normal. Uh, and that was manifesting in that vote for, for, for parties outside of the majors. And I think this is probably a continuation of that trend. And certainly in those areas where people felt that the, the major party platforms weren't representing their priorities uh, and, you know, especially for the Teals and the Greens, it was a big focus on climate. Um, we've really seen the uh, electorate responding and bringing in people outside the normal actors. You know, I've been reading Judith Brett's book, um, Doing Politics, and I was just reading about this fact that that kind of change to independence happened overseas in that 70s and 80s period, but it really hasn't happened until, you know, in more recent years in Australia and especially in this election. I think we really saw that change. Change does bring a lot of opportunity. And I want to dig into our individual policy recommendations in a second. But overall, what does this election result mean for Grattan's key policy areas? I was on the record of saying it's a policy, a light election, but it wasn't a policy free election. So I think when Labor um, sort of kicks off its agenda, there are a number of areas where they have put policies on the record and we can expect them to, to pursue those. Economic policy was, uh, you know, always an area of big debate in an election. They've got a, a policy on female workforce participation, particularly bringing down out-of-pocket childcare costs. You know, that's something that, that we've obviously at Grattan been very supportive of. Uh, it is a cost of living measure, but really importantly, it's a, a participation and productivity measure. It's, it's a really um, one of the kind of single biggest things government can try and do to boost economic activity. And if you care about gender equality as well, it's, it's, it's a really important one. There was a lot of talk about wages in the, at the election and the fact that wages are kind of rising less than, than prices. That's challenging for governments to move on. Uh, but Labor has flagged it, it will make some um, 
interventions in front of the Fair Work Commission around minimum wage and, and aged care worker pay, which I think we will see in the coming months. On the budget front, which is where I do a lot of my work, not much in the way of how we're going to address medium term structural budget challenges. I think it's fair to say both sides were pretty quiet on that in the election. But certainly I think it will be a challenge for, for Labor to try and make the, the numbers stack up over time. So we'll certainly be constructively putting forward Suggestions on both the spending and the, the revenue side of the budget about how you can manage that, that longer term fiscal challenge. Housing, there's a number of policies that Labor's put forward on a social housing future fund, which is something that Grattan had very strongly advocated for, as well as a shared equity scheme for, for 10,000 households to help them get into the housing market. Uh, again, something you know based on something that, that we had put forward. So I expect to see that come into play. Energy and climate, I'm going to leave to, to Tony and he'll have more to say on that. But I think Labor has a plan, at least in the sort of industrial admissions front, as well as trying to green the grid and help bring more renewables in. Health is an interesting one. You know, often gets a lot more in the way of promises in an election. There was less on that front this time around, but I think there's two really important things that uh, will help shape the agenda for the next term. So the first is they will do a review into primary care. This is an area where reform is desperately needed. The kind of the existing system doesn't work particularly well, particularly for things like chronic diseases, which are, are growing in um, prominence uh, across the country. What we're hoping that will do is actually go to some of the big structural reform questions that need to happen, not just kind of throw some some money at, at new grants. So we're optimistic that we might see positive change there, but it's going to depend on how that's managed. The other policy they did announce was the, the CDC, and that's had a lot of attention in the sense of Yes, that will be a really important body if we're managing another pandemic at some point. But the other component of their role is, is going to be prevention. Uh, and there's a lot of opportunity for making the health system work better in terms of actually preventing those chronic diseases rather than just treating them down the line. So that's an area, again, where I think our team will be really active in, in trying to help shape the policy debate. Transport and cities, Labor did um, commit to a review of Infrastructure Australia. You know, that's an incredibly important body because what it does is try and put some um, sort of economic rigour around infrastructure investment decisions and give government a list of priorities to, to work off. It hasn't always worked as it should and, and certainly our Transport and Cities team has been quite critical of the fact that infrastructure decisions seem to have become quite politicised uh, you often get poor quality projects going ahead. Um, you can end up with a lot of cost overruns. So we think that's actually an area which is really ripe for a lot more policymaking rigour. In the education area, there is, uh, I think there's certainly a role for governments to play in trying to arrest one of the big challenges, which has been the, the decline in educational outcomes amongst school students in particular. So we see, you know, students falling behind, both compared to the kind of countries we'd like to compare ourselves to and compared to our own performance over time. So Labor has a policy on trying to attract more high achievers into to teaching through, through scholarships. That has been a challenge for the profession is that that group is increasingly going elsewhere to find their careers. Um, so that's something that Grattan had, had advocated before, so we were delighted to see that on the agenda. The other thing that they've talked about in the school education front is working with state governments to try and create better career paths for teachers. Uh, again, that's something that we've we've done work on and, and that's going to be really important, I think, for both attracting and retaining um, more high achievers in teaching 
uh, as well as making sure that we um, allow the best teachers to, to help others improve their craft. Last but not least, uh, integrity. Labor has said they will commit to an integrity commission with teeth. Uh, they don't have that much in the way of detail on the kind of public record. Um, so we're certainly hopeful that that will move forward. But, you know, also important to remember that Integrity Commission is the last line of defence. So there's a whole lot of other things we would like to see around reforms to, to lobbying and political donations, pork barrelling, politicisation of government appointments. You know, all the things that go to how government operates and makes decisions in the public interest we'll be agitating for over the, the next three years. Yeah, and I'm really excited to see kind of how these policy recommendations come into play. Now, I'm going to dig into a couple of these key areas and probably one of your your favourite areas, economic policy, budget policy. There was a lot of justified spending and stimulus to keep the economy running during the pandemic, but the Labor government have their work cut out for them in terms of managing debt in the medium term, as well as responding to pressures to arrest the decline in people's wages. What are the challenges and opportunities on the economic policy front? It will be a, a challenge for you know for the next government. I think that's certainly true. I mean, it is a strange economic environment. Um, so the, the good news is the labour market is strong. You know, we we saw in the election campaign an announcement that unemployment now had a three in front at 3.9%. That is a good thing. I think that means that we will see wages growth picking up in the, the second half of the year and that will happen kind of organically regardless of, of what the government does. Um, what they, sh- they really need to avoid doing, frankly, is kind of putting fuel into the fire of the economy when you've got that strong labour market, when inflation is the, the challenge. Um, you don't want to see a whole lot of government stimulus going in. That's why I was critical of the, the last budget. Labor is going to match many of those measures, but I certainly would hope that they wouldn't go any further. The long-term economic challenge is, is really around productivity. That's what drives wages growth in the long term. It's been essentially kind of flatlining for the best part of, of 15 years in Australia as well as in many other advanced economies around the world. Some of that is outside government's control but we must do the things that are within government's control that, that will make a difference. On that, I think there's there's probably three key areas of what we write about that are key drivers of productivity. And you've said the childcare, we've talk, been talking about migration as well, and the education aspect. I think they're both the three areas that we can really push for. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that as well? Yeah, so I think that's right. I think, you know, often people go to, you know, tax reform and IR reform and all those things are important, but there are a lot of other levers. So um, childcare policy, absolutely. You know, education is about long-term productivity, so we must turn around that deterioration in outcomes that I mentioned before. I think there's opportunities in health as well. Um, A healthier population is a more productive one, and so doing things around, for example, management of chronic diseases, I think very much falls under the productivity banner. Uh, Better quality infrastructure decision-making also falls under the productivity banner. Um, More sanity in climate policy. Um, which actually allows you to um, generate good um, long-term investment decisions is also a productivity measure. You know, frankly, right across the Grattan portfolio, and I would say this, wouldn't I, but um, getting policy right in all of those areas will will be a kicker for long-term productivity. And, you know, if we want to see healthy wages growth in the long term, those are the sort of things we need to be looking to government to do. We're all about productivity here at the Grattan Institute. <laughs> Danny, I mean, housing affordability was a key area of difference between the parties. What changes will we now likely see in this area and what does that mean for renters and potential home buyers? Right, so look, on the home buyer front, 
Labor had a, a policy around shared equity, which I mentioned before. It's, it's modest. It will only apply to, to 10,000 households. But what it means is that basically people can get into the market without having to save a 10 to 10% deposit. Um, government will, will help them purchase and take an equity stake in their home uh, in return for that. You know, really, though, if we want to tackle um, affordability in a big way, um, the major lever is housing supply. Uh, and we've certainly been advocates for Commonwealth government providing incentives to states to try and um, create, create more supply, relax planning laws, to build more medium density housing, essentially, in kind of the inner and middle ring suburbs where where people want to live so you know that's something i think should be on the agenda that's not there at the moment in terms of renters we do have a chronic shortage of of social housing and and so that social housing future fund that i mentioned is important it it will build an extra thirty thousand houses over the next five years i think an interesting dynamic will be um, the greens took a pretty ambitious social housing policy Uh, they've obviously done very well in this election uh, both in terms of um, lower house seats and their Senate position. That's a policy that Labor could scale up and that might be one area, you know, if they're talking with the Greens about passing legislation and negotiating with the Greens, uh, I think, you know, it might be an area where the Greens will, will push for more. The task is quite big there in terms of the, the backlog of social housing. The other area where we think there needs to be more movement is in terms of rent assistance. So for those lower income Australians that are in the private rental market that are not going to be in social housing. They're increasingly struggling as rents are rising fast uh, and rent assistance hasn't kept pace with the the rise in in rents over an extended period of time. That may be another area that the government will have to look at. And that's something we've been advocating for many years. So Danny, Labor, the Teals and the Greens have campaigned on platforms of transforming integrity in politics. How do these policies line up with Grattan's recommendations? And where could they push for change? Look, so I think the the common ground of all of them has been around integrity commission with teeth, and that's almost been the sort of rallying point um, for the the push for more integrity uh, in government. Uh, And certainly the kind of um, key elements that that all of those groups are pointed to are are ones that we have been very supportive of. Um, So the idea that you have a body that can investigate systematic um, corruption or or misconduct, um, not just kind of black letter corruption, um, so the kind of grey corruption that we might be worried about I think should be in the remit, that they should be able to take tips from from whistleblowers, the public service, the public in general, as opposed to having a a formal referral, that they should be able to hold public hearings where that is appropriate and report back findings of fact to the public. Uh, And we've actually also advocated for that that the, the Integrity Commission have a role in kind of leading corruption prevention efforts and looking at corruption, um, looking at policies that, that make a difference. So I think broadly that sits in, in line with what people are proposing. It's a bit of a grad bag in, in the other areas, but, but certainly a lot of them have touched on areas that we think are really important. Um, so in terms of donations, uh, there's a, a clear case for making the system more transparent. That means lowering the donations declaration threshold. It means close to real-time disclosures. I mean, it's frankly insane that we're going to wait till next February to find out who donated in the current federal election. It's just, um, you know, not not good enough. We think there's scope for, for more transparency around who ministers meet with, uh, and some states now publish ministerial diaries, so I'd certainly like to see that on the agenda. Uh, and I think we are hearing more dis- more discussion now about how we deal with some of the challenges around port barrelling and discretionary grants. 
Um, so we will be doing some future work and obviously talking to people on this around, you know, how do we make sure that those grants are awarded in open processes where everyone can put forward that would like to participate. Um, they're done according to published criteria and you really need much tighter checks and balances around if a minister makes a decision against the advice of, of public service, um, trying to contain that sort of more blatant pulp barrelling that, that we've been hearing about in recent years. And if you do want to find out more about the particular topic, because I know it was such a key issue at the election, we do have a whole report called Who's in the Room that you can check out on the website. And also we've previously done podcasts with our Deputy Program Director Kate Griffiths on this very interesting topic. Tony, this election has been called the climate election. We've seen a surge to the Greens in Queensland, likely after witnessing the terrible impacts of climate change firsthand. Likewise, the Teals have been campaigning on a platform of climate change. Tony, does this signal the end of the climate wars? During the election campaign, we saw a version of the climate war being waged. Unfortunately, it was without any weapons at all. I think they were using rubber gloves or something because they both decided to back off on climate change. One, on the case of the coalition, because they believed that they were so successful last time they didn't need to do much more. And the Labor Party, because they were bruised so much at the last election, they decided they better not do so much more. So as a result of that, we saw this huge gap open up. And I think that's the gap that's been filled, clearly, by um, the, the independents, the Greens. Um, it becomes such a common issue when people were interviewed uh, in the exit polls that climate was one of the big deals. And interestingly, not only did it affect the actual vote, it even affected what was on offer in a sense because some of those new now MPs probably wouldn't have even been standing in the election if it hadn't been for these key issues and climate was one of them. So that's an extraordinary outcome in a sense. And whether or not we now see the battle um, change, I think, is going to be more than interesting. To some extent, the difficulty is that the dead bodies on the field now from the battle of the climate war are all the moderate Liberals and what emerges from the ashes of the coalition remains to be seen. And you know, I, I suspect that in negotiating some of these things, the new prime minister would have rather been negotiating with someone like Josh Frydenberg. What he will have to negotiate with, we don't know yet. But how they put together a coalition and how they deal with that is going to be a, a real challenge. If this, we're not just to see a different version of the climate war for some years yet. Now the. The coalition has to learn. That's what they've said they will learn from. But, of course, the people making that point mostly are the moderates. Not We haven't heard a lot yet from the people who were very much against the coalition government taking action on climate change. I mean, will the Labor government have to negotiate with them given they're likely to get a majority? Oh, not for now. Even Simon Birmingham said on, um, on uh, Sunday morning that he, that he could see a very difficult negotiation within the coalition over the issue of climate change, and that will dictate whether we've seen the end of the climate war or whether we've just seen a different evolution of it. And it'll be interesting to see what direction the Liberal Party goes, whether it goes down a more populist route or whether it does kind of listen to what voters were saying around what they did with their votes, which was essentially vote for the argument on climate change. Well, I think the other side of it is that the natural home, the natural supporters of the, of the Liberal Party in particular, the business community, had moved well before this election. Mm. And so they, the voice of people like the Business Council who are arguing for things similar to what we had said um, didn't get much listening to it because there was such a strong pull the other way. That may change, certainly for the Liberal Party. So that's where I can see some changes there. I think there is enough momentum still in the guts of the Liberal Party to try and move to that position. The trick's going to be the tension between them and the Nationals. 
And I mean, likewise, in the agricultural sector, I mean, you've written on this before that there is, you know, a desire for change towards net zero. So it'll be interesting to see how things play out with this. Labor are targeting a 43% reduction in emissions, while the teals and greens are targeting 60%. Evaluating Labor's climate policies, do they go far enough in targeting net zero by 2050? Well, I guess the simple piece of the arithmetic is no. In some ways, that's not the real point, because the first absolute necessity in this process is to have a time-based target. That creates the vision on the hill, whatever you want to call it, but it sets a clear direction. Now, no one's expecting we arrive precisely on the 31st of December 2049 at a certain point. This is all about creating momentum. So what's far more important, I think, Kat, is that Labor now starts to put in place the policy structures that support the target. We've got a dart board. We need the darts. And so I think we've got to work out how we're going to do that and not get too distracted about whether the target should be 43 or 50 or some other number because the real issue is what sort of policies we have between now and 2030 and 2035 to achieve those targets and create some real momentum. And that's why I think some of what Labor's talking about could start to create the necessary momentum. And you've written on this extensively in your series last year towards net zero. Um, It's available for free on our website to read. But I'd really like to know what would you like to see happen in climate policy going forward? There are three things. And the trick for the government on this particular area is make sure they don't try and do everything at once because then the risk is they won't get anything done. And this is a tricky area because in energy particularly, maybe even more so than in climate, they need to work with the states and territories. Uh, Most of the legislation that covers the space is state-based legislation. And even on climate, because of the lack of action over the last 10 years, we've seen the states doing their own thing. And that, whilst they've made some progress, is not being helpful into the longer term. So I think there are three things we need to do. The first one is, should be almost a no-brainer. And this is an area where we have a very common view across Grattan between our transport and cities program, energy and climate change. And that is, on transport, a mission standard on light vehicles would be a no-brainer. Um, it wouldn't cost the budget. It would, wouldn't cost, it would, in the end, people would save money and we'd start to bend the curve on what is a serious source of emissions in our country. So that's the first one. The second one is, this is not quite, it didn't sound like a climate policy, but Labor talked about it a fair bit during the campaign, although it's a bit of a nerdy issue, and that is, if we're going to achieve 82% renewable energy by 2030, which is what Labor's modelled, we're going to need a significant investment in transmission uh, and storage to be able to support all those renewables. This is a building of infrastructure. And again, Danny mentioned infrastructure and how easy it is to have big projects go off in terms of, go way behind in terms of time and way over in terms of budget. We're going to have a big challenge like that. And it's going to be essential that the new government gets on top of this early because it is the the major bottleneck in terms of reducing emissions of electricity. And that's why the third area of policy is that we need the Commonwealth government, the new federal minister, to work closely with the states and territory ministers in the Energy Council to get a degree of coordination. So what they're doing, I mean, these are all sovereign governments, of course, but we want them to be pulling broadly in the same direction. So, Tony, Danny, I've got one final question for you. And and this concept from the US that the first 100 days is a measure of a president's success. 
So if you could recommend one policy to be achieved in the first 100 days, what would it be? I'll start with you, Tony. What I'd like to see is some serious progress on something that um, even the, even the, some of the defeated coalition people have reflected on, and that is their failure to nail what was called the National Energy Guarantee or NEG a few years ago. I'm not suggesting we revive that horrible acronym, but I am suggesting that getting uh, cohesion around energy and climate policy is the thing that's going to make the biggest difference put in place now to create momentum. Now, that is a hard thing to do. We've seen how difficult it is. So therefore, my compromise in the short term, I come back to the one I mentioned a few minutes ago, Kat, and that is, for God's sake, put in place a vehicle emission standard. It's something that they're almost set up for anyway. That would be a marker. that We say this government is doing what they said they're going to do and making real progress on issues of substance. And Danny? Uh, Look, I think Tony's right. If you've only got 100 days, it's got to be something that's sort of doable but symbolically important. Um, For me, probably Integrity Commission is doable in that time frame because there's a lot of um, good work already being done out there by people like Helen Haynes that that Labor could could pick up. And I think that would send a a really strong signal that, that, that Integrity is important to this government. I would also probably squeeze in that first 100 days reinvigoration of the, the public service. Um, so sending a, a strong message that they want to hear from public servants on on policy, um, that, it, that it will be sort of depoliticised. Uh, because I think, you know, if you get those sort of institutional settings right up front, that's really going to put you in good stead to do the the important policy work over the next term. Thank you, Danny and Tony, for providing us insight into what was a fascinating election. Before we go, Danny, we've kicked off our end of financial year fundraising campaign. Tell me, why should people donate to Grattan? Grattan is here to try and make a difference to policy in the national interest. And I think that's, you know, really important in a world where we have a lot of vested interests clamming to, to try and um, shape our policy direction, to have um, a group that are doing evidence-based policy and, and really putting that national interest lens. Uh, we have a real impact and hopefully you've got that sense during the podcast. There's just a number of areas where I think we can put our hand on our hearts and say, you know, the work that Grattan did, um, whether that's on more affordable early learning and care, whether that's on social housing, um, whether that's on um, energy and climate policy, where the work we've done has really translated into um, the policies put forward in this election. Finally, I think we also play a role, uh, and hopefully the audience agrees, in a better quality public debate. So I think in a world where things can be increasingly shouty and we worry about um, you know, fake news and, and misinformation, um, we truly believe that, that facts matter, information and context matter, and you know, we spend a lot of our time trying to communicate Uh, in a a rational and sane way about policy. And hopefully that leads to a world um, where you actually get better policy outcomes. So if you believe in that, um, I think there's not that many organisations that do it. You know, please do consider supporting Grattan so we can be here doing it for decades to come. Thank you so much, Danny. And if you would like to become one of our supporters, you can go to grattan.edu.au forward slash donate. If you've enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to continue the conversation with us on social media, we're on Twitter at Grattan Inst and on all other social media channels at Grattan Institute. After this exciting weekend, we hope you all take care and thanks so much for listening.